This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. The Fed wants interest rates to be higher, but not so high that it chokes off everything in the economy. So it gets back to what is literally the ages old challenge for monetary policy. How do you know when you've raised interest rates enough, but not too much? Welcome to The Exchange, the podcast where Reuters Breaking Views columnists talk with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Ben Wink, the United States columnist at Reuters Breaking Views. I'm coming to you from Washington, D.C. In this week's episode, I spoke with Seth Carpenter, the chief global economist at Morgan Stanley, who previously worked at the U.S. Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve Board. Fed officials are mulling their next interest rate decision after lifting borrowing costs at the last 10 of their meetings. Some have signaled that they'll hold rates steady on June 14th. Others say inflation is still too high for the Fed to pause. Where the central bank's rate setters land will signal just how high the cost of money will climb. Carpenter and I talked through the calculus behind the Fed's next move and how this year's bank failures play into the fight against inflation. We also discussed the recent debt ceiling standoff in the U.S., signals coming from the Treasury market, and how artificial intelligence will change the world economy. Give it a listen. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Seth. It's, it's great to have you on, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about the Fed, about inflation, uh, potentially about artificial intelligence. Um, we're going to really run the gamut with with uh, all the topics today. So. I guess to start, you know, the the biggest news event coming up um, as far as interest rates and inflation goes is uh, the Federal Reserve meeting on June 14th and to see whether they raise interest rates again, whether they pause uh, their rate hiking cycle. So you have experience working at the Fed in Washington. I'm just wondering how high do you think the bar is for the central bank to pause its its rate hikes? after so many months, I mean, over a year now of uh, driving borrowing costs higher? Yeah, it's the question that uh, I think everyone is asking in markets and around the world. And quite honestly, right now, if they are not feeling a little bit conflicted, then, you know, I'd be really surprised. They've raised rates a lot. Uh, They know that there's usually a lag in monetary policy. They know that the banking sector is experiencing a bit of turmoil, to say the least. And so I think right now, the debate really is between have we done enough? Uh, do we need to do a little bit more? And is it more prudent to just wait an extra meeting uh, in order to, to, to come to a final conclusion on that? So I think, I think there is going to be an active debate at this meeting. We're taping this uh, on the 31st of May, and between now and then, they'll get more in, in very important data. They'll get a non-farm perils report for the month of May. They will get uh, another CPI report. And if our forecast is right and the data show a bit of a continued slowing in the real side of the economy from the non-farm perils report 
and the data show a bit more normalization and inflation, i.e. the CPI says that the core components grew less quickly in May uh, than they did in the previous month, then I think that will give them breathing room to stop, sorry, not to stop, but rather to, to not hike in June and then wait to see how the data evolve from there. And, and, and our forecast is that the data continue to evolve along the way that they want it to. And so they don't hike anymore after the, the meeting they did back in May. But I don't think there's any way they can be certain of that right now. You mentioned this idea of potentially pausing in June and then maybe hiking again at the meeting after that. Is that an easy thing for the Fed to do? It's not common for them. They've done it before, but I guess how are you thinking about the potential for that to happen? And and is that difficult for them to communicate, for them to to explain to to markets and really the, the U.S. economy, you know, how they're they're thinking about inflation and, and maybe kind of taking a step by step approach? Yeah, I think they are. I think they are trying to the extent possible to normalize that possibility now, or in, in fact, they've already done it. So coming out of the May meeting, when each of the FOMC participants got back into their regular habit of giving speeches and making commentaries on the economy and, and monetary policy, uh, a couple of them started using the verb skip, i.e. they could skip the, the June meeting. And what I think they're trying to do with that particular verb is to keep the, the presumption that they will be doing more hiking, even if there's not a hike at the June meeting. And I think it's that's a balance that they're trying to, to strike by not setting up a flag that says, we are all done, not sort of stamping their feet or pounding the podium and saying, this is it, this was the last rate hike and we know it, um, but rather to say, we wanna strike a balance between doing enough and not doing too much, but we also wanna make sure we don't do too little. Uh, and so I think that's what that introduction of that verb to skip a meeting is is intended to do. Now, you say that beforehand, and then you see how the data evolve. And like I said, if the data evolve the way we think they will, which is continued slowing in the real side of the economy, continued uh, falling in inflation, then they can say, all right, then we really are done. Uh, on the other hand, if the data don't cooperate, then they they will have established the idea that they were just taking a breather and get back to it. So I think they're already trying to make it a little bit more normal. Had they not done that preparation work, I think it would have been a much heavier lift for them to try to explain. Now, the data that you mentioned, really that jobs report we're expecting uh, for, well, at the start of June for May, that's gonna be a big one. There's, there's plenty of other indicators coming as well, but one of the other factors I'm sure is gonna be uh, on their minds, and it has been in the last few Fed meetings, are these recent bank failures. I'm curious how you're thinking about those bank failures um, that we had earlier this year and how they're affecting the cost of money in the economy, how much banks are lending, and how that might be affecting the thinking around interest rates at the Federal Reserve. Absolutely. I guess I would I would give a couple of contextual points first. One is that the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, and they've done so by raising them over 500 basis points. And they are doing that very, very intentionally in order to increase the cost of funding for financial intermediaries, increase the cost of borrowing for households and businesses in the economy, and to make the availability of credit a bit more restricted. So that's part of the intent of, of monetary policy right now. That's one thing. The second thing is even before we saw any of the banks fail that we saw so far this year, the 
rate of lending was already slowing in the economy. And in no small part, because as I said, that's why the Fed was raising interest rates to get that sort of credit extension to slow down. So I think with that as background, that what the Fed is trying to do is increase the cost of borrowing, uh, make credit intermediation more costly, and slow down the amount of allocation of credit to the real side of the economy. Then if we think about what has happened since then with some of these very high profile bank failures, we can think about it as partly monetary policy doing its thing and the Fed making it harder for, for businesses and households to get credit or at least making it more expensive. Now the challenge is, I don't think they intended to see any banks fail. Uh, and so one has to worry that maybe you've gone too far or maybe it's very, very difficult to calibrate just how much tightening in those financial credit conditions you get when, when, when we see this kind of turmoil with banks. And so what I suspect they're thinking, and Chair Powell alluded to this in some of his press conferences and other public commentaries is, we wanted to tighten financial conditions. The turmoil in the banking sector also tightens financial conditions. That means that we have to be a bit more cautious in the calibration exercise of just how much tightening we're doing. And so to get back to our earlier part of the conversation about maybe they skip a meeting, I think part of that mentality of waiting and seeing uh, is also to see just how much uh, the developments in the banking sector do in terms of restraining the access of credit to, to, to the real economy. Because they want to do it. They want to restrict the access of credit. They just don't want to overdo it. I guess you know we've, we've had these bank failures and the other uh, recent development. I mean, right now we're, we're still waiting to see if this debt ceiling deal makes its way through Congress. Um, how are you thinking about that showdown? And, and does that have any effect on the Fed's policymaking? And then I guess more broadly, does the fact that we came so close to the deadline this time around make you a bit more worried when we near the next debt ceiling deadline sometime in 2025? Wow, a, a lot to unpack there. And Absolutely, for your question about 2025. I mean, just as a bit of background, in 2011, I was uh, I was one of the people who walked down to the second floor to hand Ben Bernanke the memo about what happens at the Fed side when Treasury runs out of cash. And then in 2013, I was working at the Treasury Department, and part of what I was working on was trying to do the forecasting of when the Treasury runs out of cash. So, you know, these incidents leave me with some emotional scars. And so, yeah, I mean, I think those previous examples made me more worried this time around. And, and so once again, coming at, coming this close to the, to the wire, I think has to make everyone uh, a little bit more cautious about what's gonna happen the next time around. In terms of what it means now for the Fed and for monetary policy, I think there are a few things. First, the uh, deal that's been struck in order to get the increase in the debt limit uh, has some limitations on fiscal policy. My reading of the scoring that the OMB did, however, is that, you know, the net effect on the U.S. economy is probably not really all of that big, and it gets distributed uh, over next year and the year after that. And so as a result, the immediate effect on monetary policy, I think, won't be noticeable. One area, though, where it could be noticeable, and we've been having lots of conversations with our clients about this, I've Publish some of our research pieces on this is the Treasury Department, because everything has come so far down to the wire, has depleted its cash balance that it holds the Federal Reserve and it will have to 
get its cash balance back up in their own projections, they think they're going to get back up to over $500 billion. And the way they, they do that, the way the Treasury brings cash back into its account at the Fed is by issuing debt to the market, and then the money flows in. Well, we were just talking a little bit about how precarious the situation is for banks. And there is a version of the world where when the Treasury sells that new Treasury debt, when they sell Treasury bills that are paying five, five and a quarter percent, that could have investors shift their cash away from banks and towards Treasury bills. And it could cause a, a drain of some of the deposits that banks have on deposit with the Fed to go into the Treasury's account at the Fed. And that sort of big sloshing of money going through money markets in normal times would be just fine. But we are talking about very large numbers. And we're talking about it coming at a time when banks' liquidity positions are a little bit precarious. So does it mean that there's going to be a problem? No, not necessarily. But it's definitely the sort of thing that the Fed's going to have to look out for in case there is more volatility, in case there are more frictions in funding markets. And I've, any of those sorts of developments, I think, would be the, the type of thing that the Fed would also want to take its time with, watch to see how it develops, see if it turns into a bigger situation in terms of restraint on the economy or not. So for now, I think they have to, like the rest of us, watch to see how the markets develop. Now, as Treasury issues more debt and, and more U.S. government bonds hit the market, at the same time, the Fed isn't that buyer of Treasury debt that it was uh, earlier on in the pandemic. And actually, it's it's allowing you know, through the quantitative tightening process, it's allowing uh, its Treasury holdings to to roll off. And so do you think that also presents a, a significant risk or it's something that you're keeping an eye on just because that relief that it was providing to that market before is is completely gone now. Absolutely, it, it is gone. Uh, and in fact, it's going in the opposite direction, as you note. But one thing we, we should keep in mind is with, you know, fixed income instruments with bonds, the lower the price, the higher the yield or the higher the interest rate on them. And so what you're pointing out is the Fed had been a buyer and now effectively they're a seller. In addition, the treasury is a seller. And so often, what we see is when the supply of, of anything, whether it's a commodity or it's a financial instrument, if the supply goes up, all else equal, we'd expect the price to go down a little bit. And so as a result, the interest rate to go up. But again, that is exactly what tightening monetary policy is all about. It's raising interest rates to make borrowing more expensive for everybody in the economy. So they'll do less borrowing and, and less spending. And so I think the Fed has to be monitoring how this works. When the Treasury issues debt, someone will buy it. When the Fed gets rid of its portfolio of securities, someone will buy them. The question is, at what price or equivalently, at what interest rate? And so the Fed wants interest rates to be higher, but not so high that it chokes off everything in the economy. So it gets back to what is literally the ages old challenge for monetary policy. How do you know when you've raised interest rates enough, but not too much. Uh, so they have to monitor it very closely. And you brought up your experience working in the Treasury Department and, and specifically in the financial markets division um, of the department. Thinking about market stability, and this was something that was, was really of concern when banks were failing. And then as we got into the, the debt ceiling standoff, you know, there's still a little bit of trepidation around just how this would wrap up. Now that we haven't had another bank fail for at least several weeks, and, and it seems like the debt ceiling episode is is wrapping up, 
do you think we're out of the woods or do you still see some some signs of, of wobbles or fragility in financial markets? Well, there definitely is a lot that's going on. I think it's too soon to know if we're out of the woods yet with the banking system and the fragility there. What's going on is funding costs for a lot of banks have gone up as the Fed has raised interest rates. A lot of their assets uh, are fixed income assets. And so when market rates go up, the value or the price of those assets goes down. And so there's a challenge there that we have to see whether it's fully played out. So I don't think we can be too complacent. Uh, I talked a little bit before about how the Treasury is going to restock its cash position at the Federal Reserve, and that's going to draw in money to the Treasury's account, and it's going to come away from different parts of the market. So exactly how that plays out, I think, is also a risk to be monitored. I don't think it's uh, clear. I don't think it's clear at all that it's a disaster, but I think it's a risk to be monitored in a place where we could get some more volatility. And then there's just the rest of how monetary policy takes its time to work its way through the real side of the economy. And as the market anticipates where inflation is going and where the real economy is going and what the central bank might do in response, there's always the chance that that the market collectively changes its mind quickly and, and we get some more turmoil. So we are at an inflection point with monetary policy. We're at an inflection point with the real side of the economy. We think things are slowing a lot, but we think we will not actually go into an outright recession. But there's a lot of uncertainty. And anytime you have that sort of uncertainty where everyone's waiting on the edge of their seat, looking at each data print, it really does mean that there's the opportunity for, for volatility to rear its head again. You mentioned uncertainty and not knowing exactly how things are going to shake out. And, and I think one of the buzziest topics of this year, artificial intelligence, AI, um, there's been a lot of thinking around and you know, how is AI, especially when it's developing as fast as it is, how is that going to affect the real economy, as you put it, right? How is it going to affect jobs or, or wage growth or even inflation? I guess I'm wondering how you're thinking about AI, if it, if it does pose a threat or if you think on net it's going to add more to the economy than, than it might take away. Um, and do you think it has any impact as well on on this inflation battle that we've been fighting for the last few years? So definitely a, a big topic that will, I think, over time only grow in people's minds. We've put out some research on productivity and how productivity and adoption of new technology can affect the macro economy. And to say that it is subtle and complicated would be an understatement. So in principle, AI can make each person more productive. Uh, and so as a result, you might need fewer people to get the same amount of output. A lot of people hear that and they say, oh my gosh, that means that any productivity development, and in this case, AI, would be a job killer. But I have to say, over the sweep of history, humans, the economy has become much more productive over time, and we've got a lower unemployment rate now than we've basically seen in most of the US history. So it's not obvious that just because there's an increase in productivity that people actually lose their jobs. What can happen instead is you could employ everyone and just have a lot more output in the economy as a whole. How all of that plays out, I think, is a tricky inter interaction between where we are in a business cycle on the one hand and how quickly the new technology gets adopted. I think the best time for new technology to be adopted, technology that could cost people their jobs, is at a time when the unemployment rate is really, really low, especially if the economy was taking off and growing really rapidly. So we only have half that. We have very low unemployment rate, but the economy is slowing down. 
Does that mean that the adoption of AI would cause people to lose their jobs? Not necessarily. We have to have not just uh, the technology developed, it has to be understood by businesses, it has to be adopted by businesses, you have to get diffusion throughout the economy before it starts to show up. And in the past, that kind of process has taken years. Maybe it's faster this time, uh, but I think it is hard to say right now that starting from a three and a half percent unemployment rate, that that we should be all doom and gloom about what's going on with, with jobs from from AI. And uh, what does it mean for inflation? I think using the same type of logic, you know, if you could produce a lot more goods and services uh, with the same amount of resources, all else equal, the price of that output should go down. And so it should, you know, make things better. But can it happen overnight? You know, that's a little harder to see in order for people to deploy this new technology. They have to buy the software. They have to make sure they have the hardware to run it on. There's been lots of discussions about semiconductor, the semiconductor industry and what it, how much it might benefit from uh, AI. And, and that's because there'd be people spending money on computing hardware. Uh, and so in the short run, there might be more demand. And then in the medium term, there's more supply. And so you can get a, a whole balancing act. So I have to say, I think over time, technology has proven again and again that we can increase productivity. We can get more output with the same amount of resources and the economy can grow faster. Uh, but history also tells us that we should be very cautious about making very specific forecasts about when those productivity gains will be seen because it is it is very, very difficult to pinpoint that sort of development with any sort of accuracy. Mm-hmm. Now, from my last question, I want to kind of zoom out a bit and um, and think about just kind of how the economy has changed over the past few years. Now, you joined Morgan Stanley as its chief global economist in the middle of 2021, correct? That's right. Yeah, so you know, just as vaccines were starting to roll out around the world and as economies started to rebound after being on lockdown for, uh, for quite a while, how much have you had to overhaul how you think about the economy, about the labor market, about inflation? Um, and then what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned since starting this job uh, around two years ago? Boy, there have been so many lessons and there have been so many humbling uh, opportunities. Inflation is clearly a topic that everyone in markets, in politics, on Main Street likes to talk about. The traditional way that macroeconomists would think about inflation is mostly from a top-down perspective. How is the economy doing relative to our best guess of how much it can produce? Um, Maybe we would look at it from a bottoms-up perspective in the sense of looking at different components, housing inflation, inflation for food, inflation for goods, inflation for uh, restaurants. But the focus on the truly, truly, truly microeconomic component of it, focusing on global supply chains and whether or not the inventory of semiconductors is available, not just for computing goods, but also for automobiles, especially since automobiles were going through this transition to the supremacy of uh, electric vehicles. All of that truly microeconomic side of things that matters for inflation that's just been a, a very big change in how uh, macroeconomics has been done. The labor market, as you mentioned, another really big, really big change. So we know, looking at data from history, that the labor market can itself be cyclical, 
And when the economy goes into recession, when the economy slumps, people often drop out of the labor market. How long does it take for people to come back? Boy, that's a hard question because we don't have that many business cycles to observe from and we don't have any that had swings every bit as quick as what happened with COVID where it was shut down and everything grinds almost to a halt and then things start to recover, they take off and then they have another leg of recovery with the wave of vaccinations. And so paying lots of attention to what is the same about the labor market and very much what is different about the labor market from previous cycles, that has been a key challenge. And I think it's been one that we're still learning how to do well, but it's been a rewarding experience to learn as time goes on. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat, Seth. I think it's this has been uh, really, really uh, interesting and I've learned plenty. And it's great to hear how you're thinking about all these different topics, especially when it seems like so much is up in the air. You know, this has really been uh, quite illuminating. So, so thanks so much for joining us. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. And thank you for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. You can catch more episodes of The Exchange on Megaphone or your favorite podcasting app. Also check out our sister podcast, The Views Room. Look us up on breakingviews.com and find us on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.